Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Uh, we believe that there's multiple misconceptions that have come into the church that don't truly serve the church um, for, for the joy of the church, for the joy of Christians and believers when it comes to our relationship with Christ. And so we wanted to look at about eight or nine different misconceptions that we believe are kind of going on right now within our culture and society. And, and as I mentioned last week, we've, we've kind of walked through a few of them. One was just, number one, what's the gospel? Uh, we believe the gospel is, is definitely a misconception in today's... Um, am I getting louder? Um, I believe the, the gospel is a misconception in today's culture uh, where um, as we've continued to kind of redefine it, it, it's serving more of a what, what is God doing for us rather than us for God. Uh, what has he ultimately done and accomplished for his glory rather than the glory of man. And so gospel now in today's culture is kind of being more man-centered rather than Christ-centered. And so we wanted to tackle that in the first week of, of what is God truly doing in the good news that he has laid out for us in the Bible. The, the story of God, the redemption of God's plan for mankind to come back into a relationship with him. And so what does that look like um, when it comes to good news? What does it look like that we were created and that we fell and that God has then put together a plan that is ultimately redeeming us and restoring us back into fellowship and, and reconciliation with God and what took place in order for that to happen. If that's the good news, bringing us into relationship with him, what took place in order for us to come into relationship with him? And so we dove into that and and then from there that kind of flows into what do we then do now? What does it look like to um, walk in the Spirit of God? What does it look like to relate to God? What does it look like to live the Christian life? Is that a life based on rules or is that a life based on grace? And so we kind of looked at this idea of what's the law versus grace and how do we kind of relate those two things together? And, and so we walked through that as well. And if you want to know, you can go back and listen to that. Um, and so today's topic, as we walk into it, is this idea of suffering. And I think there's um, a lot of misconceptions around suffering in today's culture. Um, and, and I believe what we're kind of moving towards, um, as we've kind of seen within Christian culture and even in Christian churches, um, is this preaching that suffering can be removed, um, that suffering can be taken away, that suffering is a result of um, bad things that are going on, bad things that are around us. Um, and as long as we pray and have enough faith and, and do the right things, um, then that suffering will be taken away and we will live a life of ease and a life of peace and a life of comfort and a life of health, wealth, and prosperity, however you want to language it. Um, that's what we are teaching when it comes to church, um, is when you come to know Jesus Christ... Everything works out for you. Life is great. Life is grand. Life is beautiful. Life is amazing in all respects. Um, and there won't be any hurt or suffering or pain or turmoil for you because Jesus doesn't want that for you. God doesn't want that for you. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things. And, and don't get me wrong, like um, that is very attractive in preaching and proclaiming that message, right? I mean, like, you, you want to go somewhere where they're going to tell you everything's going to work out, and everything's going to be good, and everything's going to be easy, and everything's going to be comfortable, and everything's going to be uh, for you and not against you. Um, 
But what we found in Scripture is, is that's just not the case. Um, what we found, find in the Bible is that even though God is not the author of evil, even though God is not the one causing these things to happen, He's using these things to produce in us something that is going to be for our good, something that's going to produce within us a word that's called um, patience. We're not too familiar with that word anymore these days. It's going to produce steadfastness, which is patience on steroids. It's going to produce for us an eternal weight of glory, as we'll look in the scriptures here in just a moment, that surpasses anything and everything that we would be able to experience this side of eternity. So for us to want to get rid of suffering and to get rid of the circumstances of suffering is not creating comfort and, and, and peace for us, but it's actually robbing us of comfort that we're able to receive from Christ, joy that we're able to receive from Christ, workings that he's doing that we would not be able to see without the suffering. And so this is a very big topic for us because it's one of those things where there's a weird line in between where it's like, okay, we, we definitely want to pray that things work out for us. And so we don't want, you know, we, we don't want uh, bad things to happen to us. But then at the same time, there's the other flip side where, where we don't necessarily want to pray for bad things to happen to us because of what God does with suffering. Because of what he does with these, these environments and circumstances that he places us in in order for him to do a work within our hearts and our souls. So what, how do we relate to suffering? If we want to pray against it and also don't want to pray for it, how do we then relate within the middle of this? And so the best thing that I can do is just show you from Scripture what God is doing in the midst of suffering. What he's doing. And then therefore we pray for the fruit that comes from suffering that we go through. So that we then get to experience the fullness of life in Christ regardless of our circumstances that happen for us. And so as you're there in James chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 7 through 11 and then kind of break this down for us as this kind of builds towards suffering because some of this isn't going to sound like it relates to suffering, but it absolutely does. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is both compassionate and merciful. Father, as we read your word, we pray right now that you would guide us with your Holy Spirit in understanding the truth of your word, understanding the essence of your heartbeat, what it is that you want to stir up our affections for you, and what it is that you want us to rely on and trust in and place faith in as we look to your scripture. As we look to the way in which you communicate to us. As we look to this story 
of you declaring good news for us in the midst of circumstances that are difficult, that are trial, that are tribulation, that are suffering. God, we ask that you would produce in us a spirit of patience and steadfastness that leads to joy regardless of what's going on. We love you, Lord, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of things that he lays out here in this passage is first he starts off talking about being patient. And I kind of joked like we don't understand what patient means or even is within our culture because our culture, um, and, and we're even at fault of this, we are trying to do anything and everything we can to make everything quicker, right? Like we, I mean, how many of you this week yelled at your cell phone because Instagram crashed and wouldn't load a photo within 15 seconds? I mean, like, that's a reality. That happened. Like, I saw the memes going crazy where everyone, like, it's the apocalypse because Instagram won't load in 15 seconds. Or at the same time, like, we have a microwavable culture where everything has to be now. Like, we, we get frustrated if we're in a fast food joint and they don't give us our food within five minutes. We're upset about that. But the reality is they just, from the time you ordered to the time you received your food was in five minutes, you can't do anything like that in your household. But even that, we're trying to go quicker because I was in a drive-thru this week and they put us in double lines and they've got people out front who are give, taking our orders and then they got another station giving us sauces and then y'all know who I'm talking about. They have great <laughs> customer service. But they're trying to make everything as quick as possible because we are impatient people. This is just the way that we operate. And so we don't really have a category for this idea of being patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Like There, there used to be a time in which they had to uh, literally go out in their yard and, and toil up everything and then plant seeds and then wait for months praying that someone else would provide rain for them. And then once that fruit came, they had to then go out and get the fruit and the vegetables to then be able to make dinner. So he's like calling this out for us that there's this idea of waiting that is good for our souls. And we're trying to rob ourselves of this kind of work, this spiritual work of just waiting. I love that he goes into this idea of just um, beholding or considering the prophets. Considering the men and women of, of the Old Testament who had to go through circumstances that caused them to wait. I mean, we look at one of the, the, the first fathers of our faith, Abraham. If you don't know who Abraham is, I don't have the time to dive into a quick Old Testament um, 101 for you. But Abraham is, is essentially the beginning of the Jewish nation, the Jewish religion. He was actually a Gentile, but God calls him out and says, I'm going to send you to this land. And when you get to that land, I'm going to bless you with nations upon nations. I'm going to bless you with a multitude of people. Well, at this point, Abraham is old in age. 75 years old, married to an old woman in age, to the point that she's considered barren. She's considered unable to produce children. And God is promising Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a child. Uh, that's awesome. Let's, uh, I know my wife can't, 
but um, you're God, so you can work this out. You can figure this out, so I'm going to trust you. So we'll just do the work that gets us there, um, and, and hopefully, God, you'll bless us with a child. Awesome. Well, I'll give you a child in a year. No, it doesn't happen in a year. Well, I'll give you a child in two years. No, it doesn't happen in two years. Does anybody know how long before they had their child? 25 years. They're already old. They're like, Lord, what do we have to wait on? She's barren already. Like, wait, just do your miracle and let's get this thing going. No, 25 years. That they had to wait and be patient on the Lord. Like, we don't even, even within our good context and culture of Christianity today, we don't have a framework for that. I mean, when was the last time you prayed for something and would be okay if God provided it for you 25 years from now? I mean, I'd be in like close to 60, I think. I'm not doing the math right now. 57. I don't want to wait until I'm 57 for something that I'm praying for today. But yet there was goodness in God to cause them to wait that long in order to have a child. They then have Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Two sons, Jacob and Esau, but Jacob's one we're going to focus on. He has a son named Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons. They change Jacob's name to Israel. What do the 12 sons become? 12 tribes of Israel. They become the nation of Israel. One of those sons was a man by the name of Joseph. Does anybody know the story of Joseph? A lot of good things happen to Joseph, right? Wrong. Joseph, who's loved by his father, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, who's cherished by him, Joseph is hated by his other 11 brothers. Hated so much that they torture him, that they beat him, and they leave him for dead in a pit in the ground. And then because he doesn't die, they then see some uh, men coming down the road from Egypt, and they say, you know what, we're going to sell Joseph into slavery to Egypt so that we can finally be rid of him. So they sell him off, and Joseph goes and becomes a slave in Egypt, in the house of Potiphar. In the house of Potiphar, Joseph, because, I mean, he just is a good guy. He is faith in God. He loves God. He loves the Lord. He just wants to do what's right. He's faithful to Potiphar and his household, and he serves them well. And he serves them so well that he gains favor with Potiphar. And Potiphar says, basically, in my household, I'm going to make you my second-hand guy. Well, he gains so much favor, he also gains favor in the eyes of Potiphar's wife to where she wants him for her own personal gain. She, she wants to try and seduce him. And Joseph, being the godly man that Joseph is, runs from Potiphar's wife. But Potiphar's wife, being rejected and now being angry about this, makes accusations towards Joseph that he actually came on to her. And so now Potiphar takes Joseph and gets rid of him again and throws him in prison. He throws him in prison and then the Pharaoh who comes through, basically Joseph in prison starts to gain favor with the guards and starts to gain favor with um, everyone else who's working the prison system. 
to where he then gets a job within the prison. And then from there, he gains favor all the way up to literally becoming second in command over all of Egypt. Pharaoh's like, there's no one else that I would want running this nation and country other than you. And one of the crazy things that happens for Joseph is during this time, everywhere else in all the lands, there's this huge famine that goes awry. Joseph's brothers, Israel, they all come to Egypt because Egypt is the only ones who have any type of resources. And one thing that Joseph does is when he sees his brothers, he recognizes them. They don't recognize him because why would they recognize him? He's second in command over Egypt. He recognizes them and he's, he's compassionate and he's merciful. And he provides for them. Doesn't tell them who he is yet, but provides them what they need. They go back to their lands. Another, um, another famine happens. They have to come back. And they actually then move all of their people to Egypt. All 11 tribes. They come to Egypt and at this point he reveals himself. And they're so afraid that Joseph is going to kill them that they actually create a lie that Jacob has sent them to offer forgiveness to his brothers. But this is what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50 verses 19 through 21. Joseph said to his brothers, Do not fear, for, I am, in the, for am I in the place of God? Do I have the right to judge you? Do I have the right to condemn you for what you've done? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, there's this compassion and mercy It's flowing from God through what we call viceroys, agents of reconciliation. Joseph is one of these guys. Horrendous things happen to Joseph. Terrible things happen to Joseph. Suffering is happening to Joseph at every angle. And God is working in that evil that is happening to him that people meant to destroy him. God is using to establish life and forgiveness and opportunity to flourish and to live. This is what's ultimately happening for him. In our chapters of James, in our uh, verses in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, he also talks about Job. He says, consider Job. And I love this because the book of James is meant to be an encouraging book. Be patient. Endure trials and tribulations. Remain steadfast. He's encouraging his people. But he uses the book of Job as an example of trying to offer encouragement to these people. And if you're familiar with anything with the book of Job, everything goes wrong for Job. Job in the beginning is literally God's looking down and he's saying, Job is, is a guy who loves me. His heart's for me. He's, he is a godly man. He has faith in me. Job's great. Job's awesome. Satan comes into the picture, and Satan has this conversation with God. And he says, you know what? You think that he loves you. You think that he worships you. But I guarantee if I were to go down there and remove his possessions and his wealth, he'll curse you. God says, okay, go do it. 
There's like literally, like it's a negotiation between Satan and God. Although it's not truly a negotiation, Satan is just asking permission to go and do something and God's granting it to him. Like a lot of times we like to view this kind of idea of God's on his throne um, in heaven and Satan's on his throne as the prince of air here in the spiritual warfare. Like he owns the earth until God returns in the form of Christ. Like that's not the reality. The relationship between God and Satan right now is Satan's on a leash. He's on a leash and he can only do what God allows. There is no dualism here when it comes to good and evil and equality. Satan is just as bound as he will be for eternity. God just allows him to do things that God then uses and works for his good, not Satan's. So Job comes back and he takes away all of Job's. Satan goes to Job and he takes away all of his possessions, takes away all of his wealth. And what does Job do? Does he curse God? No. He runs to God and he praises God. Satan comes back to God and he says, yeah, but if I were to take away his, his offspring, his children, his family, he'll curse you. Okay, go, but do not harm Job. So he goes and he wipes out all of Job's seven children. Kills every single one of them. What does Job do? Job runs to God. He worships God. He honors God. He loves God. He continues to serve God. And the classic phrase, what you, the gift that you were willing to give, you also can take away. They're yours. They were never mine. They were yours. I got to have them for this momentary time. And I enjoyed it but they were yours. The only person that Job actually, or that Satan actually left was Job's wife, who at this point, Satan, I'm not going there yet, all right? Like, Satan goes back to God, and he says, yeah, I can take away his family, but what about his health? I can take away his health. And God says, okay, go take away his health, but do not kill him. So he goes, and, and, and Job has these nasty boils that come on his skin. I mean, it's just open wounds all over. And at this point, his wife says to him, curse your God and die. But Job, a lot of times we want to give the wife a bad flack for that. Like, it's, you took everything except the nagging wife is what they typically say. <laughs> but here's the reality is Job responds to his wife and he says to her, this is not how you usually are. He reminds her of who she is in God, who he's created her to be. And from that point on, nothing is ever mentioned about Job's wife again because there's no rebuke needed. She is reminded. You gotta remember, She's been robbed of everything too. And Job still does not curse his God. Incredible suffering. I don't think any of us have gone through the suffering that Job's gone through. Last I've checked, we've not lost seven children. I'm in decent health. So what's going on in the midst of this that God would declare good? 
I want to read you a passage from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. It says this, and this is Paul speaking. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a contrast that's constantly happening is whatever bad happens to us, it's reminding us of something good that's happened to us. I cannot compare this terrible suffering that's happening to me in comparison to the good that is happening to me in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's able to say this to the point of, basically, you can strip me of anything and everything that the world would consider good. You can strip me of all of those things, and I would still declare that I am receiving good if Christ is all that I have. If an eternal relationship with Christ is all that I have at the end of the day, it is sufficient for me. Christ is enough for me. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies is a big key when it comes to what is happening to us and what God is ultimately promising to us that allows us to be patient and steadfast in our current circumstances. So what is suffering? What is suffering that's ultimately happening to us? It is all the sufferings of our bodies. Everything we encounter that is painful, that is stressful, that is difficult, that's hard in our lives, if we suffer it in reliance on Christ for the glory of God, it becomes then a suffering with him. I mean, we have to look at Jesus Christ. I mean, because here's the misconception. Here's the question that's often happened or that's often asked. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's only ever happened one time in our entire history. And who did it happen to? Jesus. Bad things happen to one good person. Because as Romans 3 says, and as we know, as we've read, no one is good, not one. No one is righteous. No one loves God. No one seeks God. No one's after him. No one can be good in their own strength and ability apart from the work of Christ. That's what we looked at with gospel. That's what we looked at with law versus grace. It is his righteousness that comes to us and produces within us goodness, holiness, righteousness. It is in him, in him alone. So rather, the actual right question should be, why do good things happen to bad people? Why does the gospel come to bad people? It's because of Jesus. It's because of everything that he accomplished. It's because of him suffering, paying the penalty of death, paying the penalty of our rebellion, and him paying it in full so that we would then be able to receive his forgiveness, to be able to receive an eternal life with him, to be able to receive good, good gifts from heaven above. 
But he says to us that these good gifts will not come unless it is through suffering. Because Jesus is the first fruit of the Christian body, the Christian religion, the Christian family, whatever you want to call it. And if it was through suffering that Jesus becomes the first fruit of this, don't you think it also is going to be through suffering that we enter into the kingdom of God? Why should we have it any different than Jesus Christ, who's the greatest person to ever live? The Son of God. Second Corinthians 4.17 says this, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul's just continuing the same theme that following Christ does not mean everything's going to be easy. Following Christ does not mean that your bank account gets answered or the amount of children you want gets answered or the job you want gets answered. Like, that's not the end goal, right? At the end of the day, in our current culture, the American dream is not our end goal. And so God, our relationship with him, our relationship with the scriptures, our relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is not a genie in a lamp. It's not a, I will trust Christ so long as these things work out for me. That I have perfect relationship with my family, that I have a great job, and that I have a 401k. It's not a genie in a lamp to get what we want, but rather it's a pathway to provide us what we need. To provide us what we need. And here's what we need. We need patience. We need steadfastness. Because those things actually produce within us life. We enjoy things way better when we have patience and steadfastness, right? I mean, if the Bible was about you, let's just think about this in terms of food, eating food. If you're a vegan, vegetarian, I'm sorry. I love steak. So I'm going to use steak. I know I've used it before. But if I go into a restaurant and they cook me the perfect steak, medium rare, that's perfect. They cook me the perfect steak. And I enjoy that steak. I mean, I'm thinking about the flavors. These flavors are amazing. Man, this is so tender and juicy. It's just so good. And in that moment, I walk away from that restaurant thinking, man, that was, that was so fulfilling for me. That was so good for me. I loved every bit of that. And then the next time I come to that restaurant, and they do it medium well. And it comes out to me and it's tough and it's not tender. Now I'm kind of like, ah, it's not exactly what I was looking for. But I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to send it back. But, you know, I need to send it back. And then they bring it out again. And it's not exactly what I was wanting. Like, it's not red. It's pink. Like, I, I, you know, there's, I've got issues with it now. Now I'm frustrated. 
I'm not having the same ex- experience that I had before. Why? Because it's about me. It's about what you can do for me. Now I'm considering what I'm going through suffering. Because it's about me, right? But what if I walked into the restaurant the first time and they brought it out and it was a perfectly cooked steak. It's great. I'm enjoying it. I love every single bit of it. And in that moment at the same time, I'm thinking in my head, God, you created these flavors, this taste, taste buds. You created those. I'm getting to enjoy something that you created. This is phenomenal. God, you're, you're so good. You're so awesome. This is amazing. I love, I'm loving every single bit of this. God, you did this. And I'm walking out of that restaurant. And I'm walking with a different step because I'm in relationship with God and I'm giving him glory for something that he did. I'm, I'm, I'm literally walking the 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Do whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. And then the next time I come to the restaurant, God, I want to enjoy this steak again. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. This time they bring it out medium well. You know, God, it's all right. It's not as good as it was last time, but you know what? It's still provision. It's still food on the plate that I get to enjoy, that I get to receive. God, thank you so much. There's still some flavor. They tried. They, maybe there's something going on in, in, back in the kitchen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be patient here. It's all right. Maybe the next time that I come to the restaurant will be all right. Maybe they're going through something right now. It's okay. Because it's not ultimately about me, Lord. It's about you. Thank you so much for this food that I was able to eat tonight. And I'm going to walk out of that restaurant with the same fulfilling experience that I did the first time. Because I'm free. I'm free of needing anything for myself, I'm free because I'm just worshiping God in the moment. I'm worshiping God in all things. You see, this is where we have to come to this place where we understand what is truly suffering and what's not suffering. What's not suffering is you getting cut off on the street when you're driving. That's not suffering. It's just circumstances. We're just in a fallen world. Like there's going to be bad things happening in all places, in all times. If we view our life, every single thing we do, that it's about us, it's about what we get, what we receive, then we will only be impatient people that cause our brothers and sisters to grumble around us. As he says in James 5. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. Has anybody read The Screwtape Letters? It's a very interesting, fascinating book. It's from the perspective of um, C.S. Lewis writing about demons. Um, about demons who are discipling each other. Um, and so there's Screwtape, who's the uncle of Wormwood. And Screwtape is, is basically, as an uncle, discipling Wormwood, telling him how to cause people to not trust Christ or to um, basically continue to make the world chaotic. And so they refer to each of their people that they are going out to try to keep from Christ as patience. 
And in the book, it talks about how this uh, Wormwood's patient actually comes to know Christ. And so Screwtape to Wormwood is saying to him, you will be punished. You will be punished for your patient coming to know Christ. But there is still work to be done. What you can do to this patient is when they now enter into the church and they enter into this body of Christ, what you can do is create an environment in which they think it's all about themselves. That when they come in, is the music up to their liking? Is the sermon up to the way in which they like to be communicated to? Is, um, the, the, are, are the people at the front door friendly and inviting? Is everything serving them? If you can get them in that mindset, then what will be produced is grumbling because, guess what? They're all fallen people. They're all going to mess up. The sermons aren't going to be great every single week. The music's going to be off every once in a while. There's going to be issues with sound system. The air conditioner's not going to be working the way that it should be working. Get them grumbling. Get them focusing on themselves. And they'll misinterpret what true suffering is. If we can distract them from the actual suffering that God is using, and we keep it in this kind of superficial, materialistic suffering, then you will win the day, and no other believers will come to know Christ. It's a fascinating read. I think you should read it. We've got to be understood. Right understanding of what it is that God is using that the enemy means for our evil, for our destruction. That they mean for evil that God can use for good. That God can use for good. The best way to, the best way to view it, when you're walking just day to day, and there are things going on around you, circumstances, bad circumstances, the best way that you can separate these two is... Am I operating in a way in which this is robbing me of comfort? Maybe some peace? Like, is this about me? Or is there something greater going on that's not just about me, but it's that because of, of sin reigning and evil being in existence and spiritual warfare happening, there is a terrible thing that has happened that was out of my control. God, will you use this to produce within me patience and steadfastness? This could look like a miscarriage. Completely out of your control. This could look like an attempted stabbing and robbing. It's completely out of your control. This can be a church trailer that gets stolen the week before Easter. It's completely out of your control. What is God doing in your life that's allowing these things to happen that creates an environment and a space for you to rely on Him 
And you have to wait. You have to wait. What is he doing in the waiting? What do we do in the waiting? We talk to him. We pray to him. We pray the same thing over and over and over again. Abraham and Sarah, for 25 years, Lord, give us a child. I mean, at what point do you, do you want to give up? They did. They even took it into their own hands. But God was still faithful and still provided them the child that they needed. What are we doing on a daily basis amidst everything that's going on? Is it about us or is it about God? If it's about God, are we willing to wait? Are we willing to persevere in the midst of trials and tribulations and suffering? Because it's producing an eternal weight of glory that is not worth comparing to whatever this circumstance is. God is good. And he's good to you. As Romans 8.28 says, that he's working out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you trust that? Because the more you trust that, the freer you become. The freer you become. And don't we want freedom? We want liberation. We want to live these grace-fueled lives where it's not about us. It's about him. It's about what he's doing. We may not fully understand it at every moment, but we will. What we can understand now, as we've seen in all of the Bible, is that God uses evil for our good. He uses suffering for our good. He doesn't just grant us the candy that we want at every moment when we ask for it. He provides us substance. Because he's a good, loving father. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you for suffering. We know that suffering can be very, very difficult for us. Suffering can be full of tears, pain, stress. But God, it can also be full of compassion and mercy from you. God, that's what we want. That's what we long for. Just as James said, like we, we are patient, longing for the day of your return. We are literally every day waiting for you. God, it's no different in every single aspect of our life. We wait for you. We wait for you with our finances. We wait for you with our possessions. We wait for you with our joy. We wait for you with our patience, with our steadfastness. We wait for you in all things. Lord, that's faith. That's trust. It's in that place that we are relying on you 
that we actually get to experience fulfillment, joy, happiness, peace, comfort. It's only in you that we find it. Let us be focused more on you than ourselves. Grant us through the Spirit of God strength Strength in times of trials and tribulation. Strength in times when we are being lured and tempted to sin. Strengthen us to be able to say no to that with perseverance so that we can say yes to Christ and be conformed more and more to his image every single day. God, grant us love for your people. Grant us love for those around us. I believe, Lord, that the freer we are, the more beneficial we are to those around us. Because we're not just looking at our own personal wants and gain. We're looking at the interest of others so that we create space in our lives to be able to serve them to be able to love them, to be able to encourage them, to be able to edify them in any way that we can. Lord, I pray that that becomes the heartbeat of who we are individually and who we are as a church. God, I pray that the suffering that happens for our people produces a kind of people that the world around us, when looking in, see something different and says, how can you go through such a horrendous circumstance and yet be steadfast, be, be patient, and still be kind and gentle and generous and grant it opportunity for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only because of Christ that we can be this way. Lord, we cannot avoid suffering. We can only trust you through it. Let us hold fast to you and you alone. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we enter into this time of communion, we see the ultimate suffering come to culmination um, at the death of Jesus Christ. We literally see the 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin become sin so that you and I might become his righteousness. We see the good man become a bad man in order for us bad people to become good. We see him take the weight and the stress and the pain and the turmoil of all of our sin and all of our failures and all of our faults he takes it upon himself i mean talk about the the ultimate position of suffering it wasn't just him being tortured he took the weight of bearing our sin bearing our guilt bearing our punishment he took it upon himself and then had his father 
God look at him and turn his face because he could not be in relationship with sin and then pour his wrath out on him, crushing him. That's suffering. That's suffering. So that we would be relieved of that and brought into the family and fold of God. So this is an invitation for us to worship Jesus for what he did in his suffering that produces for us the eternal weight of glory, produces for us a life of heirs with Christ. We will not go through the suffering that he bore, but we will go through suffering like it. So let's honor him, let's worship him in this time of him breaking his body and him shedding his blood. Let's worship him in thankfulness as we partake of this meal that illustrates that beautiful reality. If you are not a believer in this room, we ask that you just abstain because this is a meal for the family of God. This is for believers in Christ. This is someone who's, who's positioning themselves saying, I, I believe this is what Jesus did for me. If that's not you, we just there's nothing special about this juice and bread, gluten-free bread. There's nothing special about it. It's not going to magically turn you into a believer in Christ. But this is also an invitation for you to consider your life. Do you know Christ? Have you placed faith and trust in him? Do you see what he did on your behalf and do you want to accept his forgiveness. And if that's something that you want to do and that you want to consider, then I pray, that I ask that you would remain in your seats and just pray, God, I'm sorry for the wrong things that I have done. I want to be in a relationship with you. I know that I'm a sinner. And I want to trust in you and you alone. Please forgive me of my sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to do that. So in this time, let's stand together and let's, in your own time, go back and partake of communion, worshiping and honoring Jesus for what he's done in his suffering on our behalf. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at